Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Slaughter podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners can shove up their butt. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you did last time and it made me laugh. There we go then. (laughs) What, is you first? Yes. Hi everyone. Hi. Sorry we fucked up last week. Uh, I think I just did it all wrong, but... Yeah, and I can't guarantee that we're not going to fuck it up this week either. We'll just see what happens. So... I'm going to start off, I'm going to be telling you the story of Warsop's empty gas meter murder. It doesn't sound any more interesting no. by giving it a name. No, it really doesn't. Um, but this was taken from a story written in True Detective magazine um, by Matthew Spicer. So here we go. So in the Nottinghamshire town of Warsop on June the 25th, 1952 is when the story takes place. And that afternoon after about 2 p.m., Residents of Hammerwater Drive were disturbed by sudden screams. A neighbour, who in the story goes by the name of William Smith, but that's not his real name, it's protected, he went to his window to see what was causing the shocking sound in time to see Mrs Kathleen Norcliffe stumbling out of her house on the opposite side of the road, covered in blood. Fuck. He saw that she was collapsing and he ran from his home without stopping to put on his shoes. And once he reached Mrs. Northcliffe, she was able to say that her husband had beaten her. And so William Smith carried her inside and laid her blood-soaked body onto a mat in the kitchen. I mean, it's always worth putting your shoes on, I feel. Because then if you need to do something else after. Yeah, if you're carrying a person, you want shoes on. I think it's just testament to how frightening she must have looked. (laughs) Like, not a little bit of blood. Like, he was like, fuck, I need to get to her right now. Yeah. It must be frightening. Uh, Another neighbour who'd also seen this, she'd gone and phoned an ambulance at the same time. So, this Mr Smith... Obviously, like you said, he didn't have his shoes on, so he, he wasn't really up for much. So he saw a crew of workmen on the street and like got them to come in to help out because he was just like, what on earth do I do? And he was a young man, um, and I think he was scared too. So he wasn't just one of those sort of people going through a bohemian phase where they're like, I don't need shoes anymore. Wait, I'm not a part of society. And then they walk around town with bare feet, standing on all the gob on the floor. <laughs> Their feet must be really calloused. Yeah, and I remember there was a person on The Voice a couple of years ago who's like, I never wear shoes. Oh, like, there's loads of people like that who've been and actually like, oh, I'm going to perform, I'm going to take my shoes off. You're wearing shoes as you queued to audition. <laughs> yeah. Why would you suddenly take them off now? <laughs> and let's be real, if we want to relax, the one, the first thing you're going to take off is your bra. Yeah. 
so let's not <laughs> pretend it's your shoes. That I'm fine with. Yeah, just don't wear that. Anyway, so he got this crew of workmen to come in and help. And when they came in, he noticed that there was a trail of blood leading into the living room of the house. So this William Smith entered and found 30-year-old Eric Norcliffe lying on the rug with a deep wound in his left forearm. So a couple of the men, they initially tried to bandage up his wound and help him, but this wasn't enough to stop the bleeding. Um, So they actually resorted to using a tourniquet. uh, Tourniquet? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. And I was like, like, oh, Tom, is that when you have to tie it off really tight so it stops the blood? He's like, yeah, when you're looking for a vein. I was like... Okay, a sketchy past I don't know about possibly. Um, so, but he was still alive and I and they managed to save him in time. A few hours later, Kathleen Norcliffe's body lay in Mansfield General Hospital where she was declared dead from multiple stab wounds. Eric Norcliffe was also in this hospital, but he was alive and he was being guarded by a police officer. Those that knew the couple said they'd seemed happy, um, but it was known that they had money troubles and they were at risk of losing their council house if the rent arrears weren't paid. Eric Norcliffe was unemployed at the time of the incident. He'd most recently been employed as a miner and previous to that he'd fought in World War II as a sergeant in the RAF and had been wounded twice while in service. His wife Kathleen, she'd been younger than him. They married when she was only 18 and she gave birth to three of their children and was still only 23 years old at the time of her death. Whoa. And she had three kids? Yep. Well, she's been busy. I mean, that makes it really sad, isn't it? Because she didn't... She was a kid and then married kids dead. It's really quite sad. Cut short. Um, the neighbour who'd called the ambulance... Again, her name was withheld, so she goes by the name of Mrs Davis in this article... She stated that Eric Norcliffe had been home all morning of the attack while Kathleen had been out and about running errands. Then Kathleen had returned home at around 1.45, after which the gas meter collector had called round. And not long after he'd left, that's when the screaming began. I think Mrs. Davis had been in her front yard. She was doing washing, beating rugs and things. So she was keeping a close eye on everything that was going on. Um, Two days after Kathleen's death, Eric Norcliffe was charged with her murder and taken into custody. At the inquest, the cause of death was recorded as shock and hemorrhage due to the stab wounds which had punctured her lungs. And photographs showed there were three distinct stab wounds on her back and several others on her arms. I think there were 12 stab wounds in total on so her body. So arms suggest she was fighting someone off then. Yeah. Um, at Eric Norcliffe's trial then, on the 20th of November of that year, pathologist J.M. Webster testified that two, two of the stabs in her back had been brought with such force that they'd entered the ribcage, punctured her lungs and caused both sides of her chest to fill up with blood. Oh my God. He then went on to say that not only had 23-year-old Kathleen been in good health at the time of her death, it was revealed at the trial that she was also in the early stages of pregnancy with what would have been her fourth child. So then, 
the trial got interesting. Well, that's how we got So once we got that death out of the way, like such a downer. And a clown came in. No. Um, but then we get to what was actually going on. So Sergeant Sidney Barlow, he testified in court about the several times following the incident that Eric Norcliffe had implicated himself. So at the crime scene and at the hospital, it was explained to him that his wife was in a critical condition, much worse than his. And both times, Norcliffe's response was just simply, quote, I wish she'd die. Whoa. So that's the husband, yeah? Yes. So she'd said it was her husband, and then he was like, well, I hope she dies anyway. So they definitely knew it was him. Um, Sergeant Barlow went on to say that when he went to see Norcliffe in hospital and told him that Kathleen's injuries were very serious and that he had reason to believe he was the one that caused them, Sergeant Barlow said that, At this point, he cautioned Mr. Norcliffe and reminded him that anything he said would be taken and used against him in evidence. Um, And despite the warning, Norcliffe replied, Yes, I did it with my sheath knife. We'd been falling out. It'd been going on for some time now. Look after the kids for me. Whoa, so like clear confession. Yeah, he... It just was that it. Yeah. Um, But it was just saying when he had to remind me of the caution, it reminded me of when I was writing it down, when I was at my very first primary school, back in Barnsley, um, we had this commute, this local policeman, PC Moss, and he just did everything. I don't know if I mentioned him, he did the discos. And <laughs> he came on the residentials and also popped into school to tell was us about drugs and stuff. Shagging a teacher. I don't know, he just came and did everything. It was a village. But every time I used to see him, I'd be like, say the thing from the bill, say the thing from the bill. And I just wanted him to do the Miranda Rice thing. I didn't, I don't think I fully knew that it was every police yeah. said it. I just thought it, it was made just up for the for bill. The bill. <laughs> I was like, they always say the same thing. You say it. <laughs> Did he know what you meant? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you? he would get annoyed. If it was an assembly, he'd be like, I'm not doing it now. So this officer, he later returned to Norcliffe. He'd visited the scene and he'd attended the autopsy and he went to inform him of his wife's death. And Norcliffe, he was cautioned once again, but this time he said, so she's dead. I have nothing to say. As if the other times hadn't counted. (laughs) Oh, if it's murder, then I didn't do it. I think that maybe was it. So once he was being interviewed at the station, Northcliffe explained why the attack had coincided so closely with this visit from the man checking the gas meters. Because it was literally, as the neighbour said, a few minutes after he'd come. So back then... And I, I, someone, I was reading some of the reviews the other day and someone was saying how I like listening to the podcast even though when we're really clueless about things it makes them feel so old. <laughs> so I don't know if this is going to be one of those things but back in the day, Lucy. <laughs> I hate when students say that. I'm like, which day? Tell me which back day. Back in 1952. In the olden on days. On the 25th of June. <laughs> like the olden days is not a time period you can use in a sociology exam. <laughs> We do always say the olden times as if that's a thing. Around this time, the gas meters would be coin operated. And so you just like put your sixpence in and there'd be a little padlocked section. And part of the gas man's job was to come round, unlock the meter, collect all the coins and check that the amount tallied with your usage. 
And so the visit of the gas man on the 25th of June in 1952, when he got there, he found that the lock, the padlock on the gas meter had been broken and all the money from inside was missing. Norcliffe said that this was the first his wife knew of the situation, but it seems likely it didn't take her long to realise the truth, which was that her husband had broken and emptied the meter himself two days earlier. Little shit. Yes. So, I mean, they've got money problems. He's at home. He's unemployed. He's just taking the money out of the gas meter. They've got, they're going to, he's just getting in more and more of a mess. And so now their problems, money problems are obviously spiraling out of control. This would have led to an argument between the couple. Norcliffe told how he had the knife in his hand, but hadn't intended things to go so far. And then the neighbour, the Mrs. Davis, she testified that she'd heard the gas collector say good afternoon to the couple, followed by Kathleen's voice saying, oh, Eric, what are you doing? After which came the screams that caused her to run round the back to see Mrs. Norcliffe bleeding. And then she ran to another neighbour's house to call the ambulance because not everyone had a phone in their own house then. Is that when they had a phone for a number of flats and then they could listen in on each other's conversation? Oh, like a party line. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of that. I'd be so tempted. What film is that where there's a film based on that entire premise, isn't it, with Doris Day, where she every time she tries to get on the phone, there's some like Playboy oh, guy yeah. who's chatting to girls and she's like, What is this man? <laughs> I, I think that that's every film she's made. <laughs> yeah. What is this man? Oh, I love him. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to sleep with him. Great. Okay. Yeah. But that reminded me, because even though that was the 50s, that was so long ago before when everyone didn't. And I know my mum in the 60s, they didn't have a phone in their house either. But when I worked in the jewellers before going to university, so like 2006, 2005, 2007, around then, one of the rules we had when dealing with customers if we had to take an order or anything they'd be like one of the questions you must ask them is are you on the telephone I was like everyone's on the telephone so I'd be there like oh what's your telephone number and I used to get told off all the time be like no you should never assume you should always ask them are you on the telephone do you know what I found out the other day though Luke when he was at school teenage years didn't have a house phone so he wouldn't have been on the... Tel- I mean, he wasn't in a jewellery shop buying so jewellery, to be Maybe fair. I'm being really obtuse. So people... W- no. I said... I, I was really baffled. And I said, how did people get in touch with you? He said they came round the house. That's not without okay. Without phoning first. In the night... No, but like, what about the doctors need to... Re- the school needed yeah. to... Because con- they wouldn't have had mobiles. Yeah. The school would have been trying to ring well, his mum. Yeah, he said... Well, they would have been trying to ring his mum. But they... He said they didn't. They couldn't They couldn't phone his mum. Um, he said, you like, they'd... They'd save up like who they wanted to phone and then they'd go around his granddad's. And I was like, oh my God, this is so weird. And he was like, it's called poverty, Lucy. I was like, oh, oh shit. That ended that conversation. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now we both feel ashamed. <laughs> well, so the defense in this case, they were seeking a verdict of guilty, but insane. So they called Eric Norcliffe's father as a witness. And he spoke about how Um, bouts of melancholia as they said at the time most likely depression would take over his son ever since his return from the war and this had caused some big problems in their marriage before that other people didn't know there'd been a couple of periods um, in 1951 and even 1952 earlier that that year where the couple had had to separate and Eric had had to go back and live with his father because he would be suffering from one of these bouts of depression and his dad said that he would often, during this time, he would find him just sitting 
for long periods of time completely unresponsive. A psychiatrist, Dr. Waddis, agreed that Norcliffe did suffer from melancholia, but also temporary amnesia, during which he was unaware of his actions. And this was determined during a three-hour interview that Waddis had with Norcliffe. And he said that it concluded with a discussion on his thoughts of suicide and, quote, the destruction of the entire family. Um, there was, there'd been no reference made in what I've read about this injury on his own arm previous. I think it's just safe to assume that after stabbing his wife, he'd tried to kill himself. At first, when I read it, I thought maybe this was a defence wound, like where she'd managed to get him yeah. with it. But I think after this conversation, it was clear that he just... Want, he would have killed his family and he would have killed himself. And probably explained the candour that he had with the police officers because he just had has a disregard for his own life. And so it didn't really matter if he told them that he did it or not because he really didn't care what happened to him. Um, The medical officer at Lincoln Prison, where he was being held, he disagreed and testified that, in his opinion, Norcliffe was of sound mind. And that seemed to be the deciding voice on it. So the jury found Eric Norcliffe guilty as charged. And when asked if he had anything to say before the sentencing, he said, quote, I've had to keep quiet during the case, but as far as I can see, you've heard how I did it and where I did it, but no one seems bothered about why I did it. Which I think is fair to say. (laughs) Because when you've got the criminal, just like, bye. Yeah. But he claimed, he went on, and he said that his wife had triggered this attack because she'd called him a bastard, and that there were more witnesses who could have been called but weren't called. And then uh, there was a little bit of... Only a very brief bit of information on Capital Punishment UK, um, like a blog and website. And they'd told this story, which I think is probably Norcliffe's story. And And it was said that it was started that morning where Kathleen, she was sorting out the kids for school, came down and Eric hadn't started doing any breakfast. And when she asked him, like, why aren't you doing anything? He was like, well, that's your job to do it. And they had this huge row, understandable, I think. Um, Then later she said that she was going out shopping, which angered him because they didn't have money. She was leaving him. They had another huge row. Um, I mean, she was probably just going to get away from him. Then she came home. And was like, it's dinner time. The kids are coming back. Couldn't you have started the dinner? And he hadn't. So they had another huge row. This feels very much like my mum and dad. (laughs) Now that he's retired. (laughs) Like, if you're going to be home all day, you can't still keep... Like, when my mum wasn't working, was a stay-at-home and my dad worked. Yes, she'll do all the cooking. She'll do all the cleaning. But now that you're stay-at-home and she's got a job, she can't still be that person. It's not like it's her job regardless. That would piss me off if the other half had been home all day and I've got to do the dinner. Yeah, sort it out. So then he said that they'd had this row about the dinner, so he started chopping some cabbage with his sheath knife, and she apparently criticised his technique of doing so and called him a bastard. So then he just turned around with the (gasps) knife and... So that's one version of the story. I think it's unlikely, because of the gas man coming and going, that it's more that she'd found him out, I think. She'd found out what he'd done, and he'd flipped about it because either way it's, it's not like 
his story it's like oh that's totally understandable no No, it doesn't make any difference for him killing her but but on some level it is interesting to know about why things happen what trigger them but whatever it was he couldn't handle her being annoyed at him yeah for a legitimate reason it seems so he like i say he was charged guilty and he was sentenced to death and on the 12th of December in 1952, he was hanged at oh. Lincoln Prison. I'm surprised that he was hanged because I feel like I feel like they usually there's like a get out or that it gets dragged on and then people don't get hanged. And I don't know. I was thinking that why wasn't he in prison for life? Because he was hanged literally the same year as the murder. The murder trial and hanging happened wow. really quickly. But I guess because he was unrepentant, do you think that's what makes the difference to a judge when sentencing? If you, if when they said, do you have anything to say? He'd have said, I was under stress. I was in depression. I, I didn't, know. I wasn't thinking straight. I love my family. I love my kids. Then they'd have done something different. Where he's like, yeah, what of it? I did it. He's like, yeah, Deal you don't it. know why I did it. But it's one of those cases where I think the saddest thing about having a husband and wife situation like that either way round is that when there's children then who not only have you now got a murdered parent you've now got a murderer executed parent parent, and that's it you're an orphan and it's been in this that's i I think one of the most horrendous situations better have a nice aunt and uncle really yeah when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Should I go straight into mine? Yeah. Right, this is a bigger, and I'm surprised we haven't already done it. It is Peter Sutcliffe. The I'm surprised we haven't book. already done it. I used the book, Somebody, Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son 
like Gordon Byrne for a lot of the information. Although near the end, I kind of gave up and used some articles because there's so much information. No, <laughs> I'm not here to read books. It took me hours. <laughs> like recognition, recognition. Um, <laughs> like for when it's sloppy and people pick holes, they're like, at least I said I did it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, right. It's because the pressure was on because it's a well-known story. I was like, I can't just give the basics for this one. I've got to look into some detail. So Peter Sutcliffe was born in June 1946 um, to his parents, Kathleen and John, who were a Catholic couple. So he's, uh, he's second born... Oh no, he's first born, but obviously because they're a Catholic couple, they're going to have like a million more kids. He was very sickly as a child and his um, his sibling died. He spent a lot of time with his mum and they were super close, a bit weirdly close. Very much a mummy's boy, a bit of a loner, preferred staying in with his mum. And then even when he was a bit older, he'd still hang out with his mum or he'd be like reading, but he didn't like playing out. And his father was very much like a man's man and thought this was really weird. Uh, he was bullied a bit at school. He coped with that with like, hiding away. And in the playground, he'd go stand in a corner in this little spot where he could see what everyone was doing. But then people couldn't really see him. And his dad Ooh. used to like... So his dad would used to like walk past the school or just, just like give him a wave. And then you'd see like his kid like just standing in the corner with these little weird beady eyes looking around. Mm-hmm. And I think he was like, yeah, my kid's weird. That's really sad. Can you imagine it? Being at school and there was just a kid who every break would just stand on the corner on oh. their own. Almost as bad as singing to yourself. That's what I used to do. Only an infant. Then I got off around at primary. I remember when I would walk home from secondary, I'd have headphones in and I would mouth along to the songs just to enjoy myself. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine because people will think that I'm talking on a Bluetooth or something. It'll be totally cool. And then one of the girls in my ear was like, I saw you singing on the way home. And I was like, but I wasn't making a noise. (laughs) See, I used to flat out talk to myself on the way home and I just because I was a naive teenager I just assumed that no one in cars looked at people walking yes that's why I was yeah. like I was like no one will see me walking along no I was like I can't see care. anyone yeah I can't see anyone walking towards me therefore I'm safe and then my friend and her dad used to give her a lift home and they used to drive past me and then whenever I saw her dad he's like oh it's the little storyteller and I was like what oh. <laughs> <laughs> well you used to podcast to myself oh on my the God. way home like, I find those teenagery awkward things so weird because the embarrassment is so deep that you remember them like now yeah. for years and years and years like I've done loads of idiotic stuff as a teacher but it never cuts you as deep no. as when you're that age and you're like I've been found out yeah. they know I'm a weirdo but then what I find weird is the amount of kids at school who do weird stuff all the time I really don't seem to give a shit whereas I would I was quiet and I would there's kids that shout out stupid stuff and everyone laughs at them and I would have absolutely died but they just don't care they just shout out something else like two minutes later yeah it's weird, but think, start thinking of that, the weirdest thing happened in my class today. I was teaching a citizenship lesson and they had to do about the police powers and they had, I didn't plan the lesson, it was just done. Um, and they had arrest and detain was one of them, stop and search was one of them and then there was another one and this kid, and they had to present in pairs or on their own to the group about their, their thingy, about the one that they had. And this kid 
year seven a bit strange and he like puts his face really near you when he talks to you so he's a bit strange already and he had one and it had like a bit about how police aren't allowed to strip search you in public which is a bit weird that we're doing about that but fine yeah what year was this that they have to learn yeah, seven i would like so when you get arrested kids yeah here's how to stand up to the police exactly so then it, he was like can i use volunteers in my presentation and i said yeah if it's acceptable so then when we got to presenting time he puts his hand up he wants to present so i get him up and he gets up and says the police have lots of different powers they are allowed to search you however they're not allowed to strip search you in public can I have a volunteer, please? And all the kids <laughs> were like, what the... F-? Looked at each other. Like, is and he going to f- try and rip my clothes off? Then I'm looking at the kids and looking at him. And then um, this one girl, like a girl at the back and then a boy at the front put their hands up and he goes running over to the girl at the back and puts his face really near hers because that's how he talks to people. And goes, yeah, yeah, come on up, come on up, come on up. And she's like, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. So then I get one of the boys to go up who wanted to go up anyway. So you're just like, rather than saying, what are you going to do with him? Like, I'm going to see how this plays out. Well, that's, exactly, that's exactly what I said to the kids. I said, let's just see how this plays out, guys. And I said, just be careful. And then... So all he wanted, Just be careful. all he wanted the kid to do was to pretend to stab someone, and then he was going to tell him to go back to the station. But it was so strange. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. We can't live with the not knowing. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, so little Peter Sutcliffe is also a weird kid, being a bit of a voyeur in the playground. Um, so. He left school age 15 and he went straight to work at an engineering works as an apprentice. Um, but he remained painfully shy. And I, I've gone to see kids on work experience in situations like that. And if they can't engage with other members of staff, people, like people, I guess, sort of ignore them or like find them a bit strange. And it annoys people when people are quiet at work, I feel. But when you're that age... You just don't know how to respond. You've just not got the social skills yet. So he didn't make much of an impression on others. uh, Mostly went unnoticed. At home, he spent a lot of time just either staring into space or he'd go into the bathroom for hours and hours on end. Yeah. What, at home? Yeah. I thought he meant on work experience because like I've definitely (laughs) hid in the toilet some work experience before. (laughs) Like in lunch hour, that's a really long time when you don't know anyone and don't know what to say. Like, I'll just hide here. Particularly in schools because they get so many people in and out. They do not give one shit about a newbie. Yeah, when I worked on supply for a bit, I'm like... I'm just going to stay in this classroom for the entire day. I never got, I didn't even go to Wii. Like I did not <laughs> dare leave that room. I was like, this is the room that I'm in for the next six hours and no one can speak to me. <laughs> no one likes a supply teacher. That's Mm-mm. the problem. So, I mean, he was 17 and he had four brothers and sisters. So I'm guessing he didn't have his own room. So he had to go somewhere. Apparently he would just also like do other stuff in there. Like he'd just sort of sit and stand and like stare at himself in the mirror just for ages. And it was like the 60s, wasn't it? So now, I mean, there's no, yeah, there's no phone to play on i guess there's not even like games consoles or stuff so, i always think that on tv like when you're watching a period film like people just sit in rooms they just sit <laughs> and have a think yeah just contemplate write letters yeah a lot of that he quit his job because he didn't like it and um he had another of like several low-paid manual jobs as well after for a while he was a grave digger as well um and he began to gain a little bit more confidence and he saved up and he bought a motorbike and i guess that was sort of like this is my personality now i have a motorbike so he began spending time outside he'd stand outside the house fiddling around with his motorbike looking sort of like he's repairing it even though he didn't really know what he was doing and he made a few 
male friends, pretty quiet like himself, but people to sort of knock about with and they'd go for drives. They didn't really like going out locally to the pubs and things and it was quite a small town. So they'd go off and then they started, I mean, they were all right looking. So they started getting a bit of attention from girls, but Peter Sutcliffe didn't really seem very interested in that, but he was happy to sort of tag along with his friends when they were hanging out with girls and things. Peter met Sonia Suzama, who was Czechoslovakian. She had Czechoslovakian parents. The Czech Republic now. Yes. <laughs> and they started quite an intense relationship. She drank in bars and pubs at age 16. So, I, th- I mean, I think you could just get away with it in small towns, really, a little bit more. And obviously in the 60s. So, yeah. Uh, but she was also really shy. His parents initially liked her. Well, they were just really excited that he wasn't gay to be oh, honest I guess. like he's finally doing normal things <laughs> yeah. um but then they quickly found a really boring and not really much personality or motivation. <laughs> like, like, you can move in your girlfriend but we're gonna want her to entertain us <laughs> yeah well they were just you know, when people are so shy that it feels like they're just being rude because they're not making any effort but they just can't i think it was a bit like that so then peter's brother mick came home one day and he told Peter that he'd seen Sonia in a sports car with another man. Dun, dun, dun. And then Peter made no response. Now, he wasn't someone to lose his temper quickly anyway. He was really quite reserved and controlled, but it did play on his mind a lot. And he confronted her and she said it was true. She'd started studying at a local college um, and, she, and he was an Italian with a sports car. So she'd started cheating basically um and she didn't really say she was going to break up with him but she also didn't say she was going to break up with peter sutcliffe so this went on for a bit of time so in response to this they formed a thruple (laughs) no he started shagging sex workers oh (laughs) so he started driving to bradford he had a car by this point and he started hiring sex workers in his car um but he initially he sort of just saw them as like a commodity but then he started to hate them and it's because of one experience where there was a sex worker who he'd agreed a price with but he only had a 10 pound note and she'd said it would be five pounds so she said oh i'll just go in this garage to get change and went in with his 10 pound note and then these two men came in and chased him away and she just kept the tenor um so he was furious and he thought she was a foul woman and he developed a loathing for uh, any prostitute he said in his words so around this time 1969 age 23 he also told a friend that he'd started carrying a sock around in his pocket <gasps> full of coins no but whacking. yeah it was for whacking oh what was it what was so in it he well he didn't have anything in it but he said if what's he needed the fucking to point? he's just gonna like <laughs> tickle them to death well he said he, if he he's needed gonna to. wave his smelly sock in people's faces that to be fair that would weird people out it's like that video on youtube where it's like how to get out of any fight and the guy just goes up and like pulls his trousers down <laughs> And then everyone freaks out because they're like, being having a fight is easier for them than being around a homosexual, apparently. What? I mean, there's like loads of videos like that on YouTube where it's like, oh, if someone starts beating you, just enjoy it and just be like, oh yeah, harder, harder. And then it freaks people out. Yeah, Carl Pilkerton, um on the Ricky Gervais podcast said that a guy, I think I might have said this before. Yeah, I think I've said it before where a guy came over and tried to steal his shoes and he just started going, yeah, you want my shoes? Well, I paid a lot for these shoes. I love these shoes. And just started being really weird and freaked him out and the guy just ran off. Yeah. I think it works. But no, he said that if he needed to, he could pick up a rock and then put it in the sock. 
There's not always a rock about. Well, I think he's thinking of if I need to feel like attacking someone, whereas then... Oh, not if as I in, like, in the heat attacked. of the moment. Well, then why don't you just find a good rock and have it ready? Well, he... Did, he carried... I don't like this plan. I think he just <laughs> had a sock in his pocket. Do you know, like, if... I like when you were a kid did you ever go to school why what's this in my trouser leg this happened to me in assembly once when I was about seven are you gonna say dirty naked yeah <laughs> <laughs> pulled a pair of pants out of the bottom of my leggings when I was like seven did anyone say I don't remember anyone seeing. I was like, oh, that's what it is. That's what that is. But maybe that's what happened. It was like he pulled it out of his trouser leg one day and someone was like, ew, is that a dirty sock you've left in your trousers? And he's like, no, this is my whacking sock. I'm just waiting to find a really good rock and then I'm going to get yeah, you. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, probably. He also said that to his friend that he'd recently done that, like put a rock in the sock and he'd whacked a sex worker he described as an old crone on the back of the head with it. It turned out to be true because she went oh, to the fuck. police and the police came and questioned him. But he said, I did whack her, but I just whacked her with my hand. And so they let him go. You're allowed to just smack people on the back of the head and that's fine. Apparently. In September of the same year, he was arrested after he'd been seen crouched in a garden holding a hammer and a policeman had walked past and been like, that's weird. And he was charged with being equipped for theft, which he was all right with because... I guess he knew he was equipped for murder, effectively. Ah. So he goes, hammer is his weapon of choice from now on. So he's like, oh, theft. Yep, that's me. Yeah. So after six months of seeing the Italian, Sonia finally promises that she's going to end it. So he begins visiting her at college every weekend where she's staying. Um, And she was studying art. So she goes like, she's quite an arty type after a bit. But in 1972... She's admitted to a psychiatric hospital after she, in the middle of the night, started wandering the streets in her pyjamas, convinced that the world was going to end because of something like technology taking over. So her parents stepped in and they said to Sutcliffe, you need to stay away for a while while they care for her. So she did she did improve a bit and then she relapsed because she believed that she was Cinderella. So Sutcliffe now has got more time and more independence. So he begins visiting sex workers all the more. Then he gets a job working nights though. So that ends his visiting of the sex workers. So then he begins to dedicate time to nursing Sonia back to health, which impressed her parents quite a lot. They thought this guy, you know, he stuck around. And it took four years. And as far as they knew, he was loyal that whole time. So they're kind of like, look, this guy's proved himself. So then they get married. He stuck around when she was dating another man for six months. Yeah, true. He was obviously just going to cling no matter what. Yeah. So they get married on Sonia's 24th birthday and then the two of them move in with her parents um, and they go on honeymoon in Paris. It does seem all very much... I mean, I guess it's from his point of view, but I feel like she has no... She doesn't seem to have any authority in what's happening. She's like trying to date another guy... He's still apparently her boyfriend. Ugh, fine. Months later. <laughs> then she's like having an episode and he's just stepping in to care for her. Mm. And then it's like married. Like, I'm not seeing much agency on her yeah. part. In it. I mean, it, well, it, things got worse after they got married. So, um, but I think, to be honest, a lot of it was from her side. So Sonia had like a quite a quick temper when they lived together. So they lived in her parents' house in a room and... There was no plans to move out. I think they were saving money to buy their own place. Obviously, he was working quite menial jobs. She was studying. But she got into arguments with Peter Sutcliffe quite a lot. But she also got into arguments with her parents. 
And those three sort of got along well. He got along with his in-laws pretty well. So she was sort of barraging people with argumentative behaviour. Maybe maybe she just wasn't happy and she didn't know what to do about it. But he would respond by spending hours in the bathroom again. So in 1975, um, Sutcliffe began to take an interest in a divorcee, early 30s, called Anna Rogulskinski. He approached her in public um, when he first saw her asking her to come over for a coffee, but she refused. Now, this is the first time that he's t- gone down this predatory road or been... It, it seems like he just went from nothing, whacking that woman, nothing, and then this really escalates. So then he follows her after he's asked her for a coffee, but seems to give up, so she doesn't think more about it. Now, she lives with her boyfriend. They have a row one night, and she goes out, she walks off to the police station to report him being abusive to her. And then after leaving the police station, Sutcliffe approaches her in an alley, asking if she fancied it. She responded, not on your life. And then he followed her and hit her from behind three times over the head with a hammer. Then he pulls out a knife with the intention of killing her. He raises her blouse and he's about to stab her in the stomach when a man shouts, what's going on out there? And he runs off. Now the man had obviously seen that something was going on, but she passes out and she's left there for an hour. So he obviously kind of went, guy's gone, I don't need to worry about it. Um... And then she's taken to hospital and luckily she did then because she had a 12-hour operation which saved her life, but she couldn't describe her attacker. Um, She couldn't remember what he looked like at all. So the very first attack obviously intended to be murder. There's not really much escalation here. And then he sticks with the hammer and the knife business for the, the entirety of his attacks. So the same year... Sutcliffe was out with a friend called Trevor Birdsall and they were driving home from the pub when Sutcliffe saw um, an older woman, 46-year-old office cleaner Olive Smelt, who he is convinced is a sex worker. So he pulls over and they'd seen her earlier the night and he says, we saw her earlier, she's a sex worker, I'll be right back. Follows her down an alleyway, hits her twice on the head with a hammer, then goes back to the car with his mate and drives off. Which, really, really strange, erratic behaviour. Yeah, because if he's just doing it for fun, he's not stuck around to enjoy it. He's like, oh, I'm just really going to quickly do something. (laughs) But then, like, his friend Trevor sees an article the next day about a woman who's been hit in the head by a hammer. He obviously knows that it was um, Sutcliffe. Oh, he knows it was him? Yeah. But because of the area, so this area, um, it, what is it, Bin, Bindley? Bingley, this area in, in Yorkshire, um, violence against women was just so commonplace. It and was, everyone is just carrying hammers around. Well, but Trevor's beating up his wife. I mean, he's oh. a bit like, well, this is what we do. Just people are just beating up their wives left, right and centre and it's just accepted. So uh, he was just like, oh, well, it's just another woman getting hit by a man. Mm. Um, so he doesn't say anything Um, so that summer Sutcliffe gains a position as a long distance lorry driver which is a very dangerous job for someone who is out to murder people and there is I think did you did you say that you watched that program I gave up on it eventually but it was about how long distance lorry drivers and sex workers there's often a lot of of hiring of sex workers by people who are traveling long distance yeah um, so I think there were women around that were offering themselves. Yeah, because there was... Oh, God, why is my memory so bad? Because we talked about the documentary loads, didn't we? Yeah. 
and about how there were so many missing sex workers on this particular yeah. stretch of highway. So they were like the suspected that it would be a long distance drivers because yeah, yeah, and it's so hard to catch them because like yeah, because then they're gone. It's so random. So October 29th, nineteen seventy-five. I meant random as in like <laughs> random attacks, not like that's not my observation. Oh my god, so random, <laughs> so random. Uh, so October 29th, nineteen seventy-five, in Leeds, Wilma McCann, a housewife, had been to the pub. Now she got curry and chips on the way home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, funny. Um, and she didn't feel like walking, so she flagged down a lift. Now she's picked up by Peter Sutcliffe. Now Sutcliffe had said that she offered him sex for five pounds, and they pulled over. He said, yeah. Um, but that because he didn't get immediately erect, that Whoa, she she's got a gob full of curry sauce. <laughs> yeah, sorry, but... she's gonna get murdered. She's a gobful. <laughs> so she got annoyed apparently and stormed off. I, I think she said something like, "Well, if it's gonna take you that long, I'm not bothered anymore," and got out. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she wants to, <laughs> she wants to get it over with and go go home. Like, yeah, give me five yeah. pounds for a taxi because you're weird. So then. He follows her. She walks off. He gets his hammer out. He hits her repeatedly over the head. He stabs her. Then he drives home and goes to bed. Um, I think he... Like, I don't think he had blood on his clothes. Obviously, he's living with his in-laws as well. No one suspects anything. No one he sees He must anything. have done. If you hammer somebody, there's going to be blood. You have to yeah. be really close range with somebody to do that. And it's such a violent and brutal mm. thing. Like, he must... At spatters, he must have. He must have, yeah. Um, so, Wilma's body is found the next day, and she's been stabbed nine times. But there's no one linked to the murder. It's, I mean, it's such a random thing that he's just picked her up. It's not like there's any... You, if you look at all the people she knows, it's never going to be him, is it? So then Sutcliffe's next victim was a middle-aged woman who's happily married. She's got three children and worked at her husband's roofing business. But times are really hard. She's called Emily Jackson. And she was also, when her husband went to the pub, she was working as a sex worker just to make some extra money in the evenings. So she was picked up by Sutcliffe, who had asked her to help him. So they drive off and he says, the engine's making a funny noise. Can you help me have a look at it? They pull over, she walks round as she's looking at the engine, he hits her on the back of the head with a hammer and then he stabs her 52 <gasps> times with a screwdriver. It's totally violent. He doesn't have sex with these women. He just, to- just, it's like, he's obviously getting off on the on the murder. Are you trying to? I'm trying to see how long it would take to, s- 52 stabs. I'm only on 30 right now. Like you, he, you, oh. It's an, yeah, it's horrific. So, again, no links to him, bodies found, no one knows anything. So then a month later, I mean, this this is a lot of women in a very short amount of time. One, This is why he's known as, I'd say, UK's worst serial killer. I suppose it's like, <clears throat> I suppose with a lot of these, like, once you've got away with them, and you're like, yeah. well, keep going. <laughs> exactly. So a month later, he attacks Marcella Claxton, a black sex worker. He hits her twice with a hammer, but she survives. She needs 50 stitches to her head. Now, she had learning difficulties, so although she gave a bit of an account of the attack, people basically really ignored it. And people weren't, at this point, piecing together that these attacks were connected because sex workers were getting attacked a lot anyway yeah. just the general thing of like yeah. oh well you're putting yourself in that position people are gonna act like that towards you yeah so he he gets worried then because he thinks she didn't die she might be able to say what i look like so he gives it a few months then um but marcella didn't lead the police to him she didn't 
know enough about him so no one comes for him so he continues well also it's hitting people in the head so yeah when you've had a serious head injury i don't think your memory is going to be crystal clear usually so he attacked irene mitchinson which is a homeless sex worker um hit her over the head with a hammer while she was having a wee um and her body was found near to jimmy savile's house added to the little slaughter kill him up so by now the media had been publishing so many of these attacks and murders that it was realised that these were connected and the name the Yorkshire Ripper had begun to be used in the papers. Um, but Sutcliffe was nowhere near to be being caught at this point. There's a lot to go. <laughs> Sex workers had begun to work in teams and they'd, they'd twigged on it's not safe or a lot of them were moving from the Yorkshire area and going to work in Manchester because it was considered that was more safe. So Tina Atkinson, she was a sex worker and she worked on one of the busiest roads um in Yorkshire but because it was so busy and there were a lot of women there and obviously they were working in teams she just didn't fancy it that night she went off to the pub and then she got really drunk they refused to serve her so then she started approaching men in the car park which was obviously a dangerous way to go but I think she thought what are the odds that this guy they're looking for is here so then she gets into Sutcliffe's car and they drive away um they went to her flat where he killed her with a hammer and then used the knife again. And he left her body in the flat, but he threw the hammer from his car while he was driving home. So he's buying new hammers every time. Well, I don't know. I don't know if this is... Then this is an open and shut case. Just be like, go down to B&Q. Who's your main hammer customer? (laughs) That's a very expensive way to do things. But this hammer gets found, but it's found by a groundsman who just uses it for the next three years as his best hammer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saw that line in your book before you said it just be like oh <laughs> free hammer lovely it'll be covered in blood i know it's, there's got to be some evidence on it i just shows you how expensive hammers are <laughs> yeah. that he's willing to use this bloody murder weapon that he's it's clearly been used in a murder <laughs> he's gonna use it as his best hammer. side of the road because i can't be just throwing away hammers willy-nilly <laughs> i can beat a sutcliffe he doesn't give a shit <laughs> So next, Sutcliffe broke from his pattern and he targeted a 16-year-old girl who was not a sex worker, Jane McDonald. She'd been out with friends. She'd met a boy when she was out who was 18. Um, had a bit of a cheeky snog with him. He'd walked her part way home. They'd said, oh, let's go for a date next week. Then she walked the rest of the way home. It was quite a nice night. And spotting her, Sutcliffe had followed her and then he'd just hit her from behind at an opportune moment. And then he dragged her into a playground Um, and she was murdered. But the media described her as the first innocent victim of the Yorkshire Ripper, which really shows the mentality that people had of sort of like, oh, now we've got to take it seriously. Well, because if saying she's the first innocent victim, then what's the implication that the others are guilty? That they... That's really Yeah, bad. like brought it on themselves. Awful. But they're criminals too, is basically what they're saying. And it doesn't oh. really... That's horrendous. So his next victim was a 42-year-old Maureen Long, who she was quite known in the area. She'd been working as a sex worker for quite a long time, but also she went to the pubs a lot. She'd been picked up for sex. She'd gone for a wee and he'd struck her on the head with a hammer, then stabbed her. And he left her there on some wasteland. Now she survived. Um, and this time someone had seen them as well they'd seen her get out of the car they'd seen the car but they were mistaken about the make of the car they were really similar they said it was a white ford cortina but he had a white ford corsair so then the police were just looking for a white ford cortina because this witness had been quite sure and they were stopping cars and questioning people 
And, but then, yeah, they, obviously they didn't find him. So the same year, Sutcliffe picked up Jean Jordan, who was a 20-year-old sex worker and in Manchester. So he's broadened out now at this point. And he's even targeting women in Manchester, I guess because the others are working in teams and he's just mm. like, I'll just go where it's easy. So they agreed a price and they went into some wasteland where he hit her with a hammer 11 times. And then he hid her body and left. Now her body was found by Bruce Jones, who played Les Battersby in Coronation Street. No way! But they're all over Manchester, Coronation Street actors. True. Like, if you turn a corner, there's a Coronation Street actor. While driving home, Sutcliffe had realised that he'd given Jean a £5 note for the sex transaction. Oh, and was like, I'm going to get that back. Well, he hadn't got it back off her, but then he realised that he'd got that from work and it was a brand new £5 note and they could trace... Like the the mark on it to see where it yeah, came like from. Yeah, like the little serial numbers and shit. Yeah. So a few days later, he he kept checking the papers to see if Jean had been mentioned in there because then he'd know that they'd found the body and no one had said anything. So he went back to the body and he searched and he couldn't find the five pound note anywhere. He thought it's not in her pockets. He tried to look for a handbag. He couldn't find one. And then angrily, he's like mutilated the body. So somebody's taken the five pound note. Well, or do you think it was just lost in the cup? just wait she'll find out okay so 10th of october jean's body is found and then a few days later they find her handbag or a purse for american listeners and in there is the five pound note now please have the same thinking that he had and they say right we're going to trace this now a lot of people were quite um they were like well look five pound notes get handed around all the time this is nonsense you don't even know who gave it to her it could be anyone but the police decided look this is the best lead we've got we're gonna find out where that five pound note came from and it they worked out that it was a batch that had been handed out to some factories in the yorkshire area so one of the men they questioned as a result was peter Sutcliffe, and he said that he'd been home the night of the murder which his wife also confirmed Oh, I know. Sonia. Yeah. Then, uh, but then they questioned loads of men. He wasn't top suspect or anything like that. They questioned a lot of people. 14th December, Sutcliffe was out driving and he sees Marilyn Moore, who's a 25-year-old sex worker, and he sees that she refuses to get into a car with a man because she's only seeing her regulars at this point just to be safe. So he parks his car a little bit out of sight, jumps out, and then shouts, bye, see you later, as if he's, like, leaving one of the local buildings. And this is enough for her to think, he seems safe enough, I know where he works, and she gets in the car with him. So he's quite clever. So he pulls over and suggests that they have sex in the back of the car. So as she gets out to get in the back of the car, he hits her. And he sort of misses and slips in the mud. So then he hits her again twice, but she obviously has has felt it at this time the first blow wasn't as strong as normally it would have been so she's screaming and screaming and screaming does exactly the right thing and some people not far away look over and he notices them so he goes so she survives this attack and she was able to give police a description of Sutcliffe so they obviously they draw the sketch and they've got something to go on then Uh, um interesting on the Facebook group this week there's been a conversation about um someone brought up why um people's female friends seem to be more into true crime than male ones there's a bit of a discussion about it and a few loads and loads of people so i think we've probably said it before talking about the fact that they're into it because it's like 
there's always little tips for how to stay safe yeah. a little bit so there's one for you just scream a lot yeah get people's attention exactly despite the fact they've now got a description of him Sutcliffe still continues and he attacks sex worker Yvonne Pearson so after he'd hit her a car pulls up nearby and they're in a bit of wasteland he often does this I think I think the women tend to agree like oh we'll pull over we'll have sex in this wasteland and then you'll take me back to the street where you where I got into the car so a car pulls up right next to them so while he's attacking her he grabs her pulls her down and grabs some stuffing um from an abandoned sofa and there used to be stuff with horse hair like actual horse's hair and he grabs a handful out and he shoves it in her mouth so she can't scream and then holds her nose which imagine how rat like it's moldy old sofa and then he just holds her down for like what could have been he said up to an hour just her there knowing that she's with this guy who's obviously the Yorkshire Ripper and she can't scream, he's got her. Um, and then eventually this car just pulls away and he beats her to death and then he puts her her body under the sofa and it's not found for months. So tragic. And then he carries on. Ten days after that murder, he approaches Helen Ritka. He uh, just thinks he's invincible, yeah. doesn't he? At Huddersfield Market and he convinces her to go for a quickie over at the timber yard. Um, I'm I'm surprised that he's... I don't know if there's a lot of women who are willing to have sex with him for money or he can pick out a sex worker yeah. in a crowd. And I was thinking that. I was like, I didn't realise there were that many people. But I guess he's looking for them, isn't he? Yeah. Also, I'm really shocked at the places where they're going. We've had Wasteland, yeah. Timber Yard. I thought, I don't know. Yeah, Ooh. quite like quite built-up areas. Pub car park. Um not a building yeah so he planned to hit her then he realized this time he's got an erection so it goes to show that he's not usually sexually excited but i don't i don't understand the mentality twisted so he still gets out the car and he hits her and then he realizes that two taxis not far away can see them so then he drags her into a corner and he rapes her and then he stabs her and then he hides her body behind some wood. I'd like another horrific, awful crime. And then her sister reports that her missing three days later. I don't know why it took her three days. I think she was scared. Um, or wondered, like... Well, if you don't like... I don't know. I think it would... That's reasonable, I think. Well, she'd literally been at the market with her, though. Okay. Yeah. But if you just assume they've gone home or something, yeah. it's not like you've got a mobile to check. You'd easily go three days without chatting to someone. So then Sniffer Dogs very quickly find her body in this nearby yard. Um, and then that's seven victims now. So the Yorkshire Ripper, huge news story. And there's a Radio 2 show that was really popular with a lot of young women called The Jimmy Young Show. And they put on their radio show... You know, if you know women out there if you know a man who's been a bit odd report it look we've got to get this guy it could be and i think that's why the name of this book is someone's husband someone's son because they're like it could be someone that you know this is someone who's got a normal life so women did start to come forward but not sonia so and then the yorkshire post offer five thousand pound reward for any information that leads to a conviction people are getting desperate now so for two months, the killing... I'm getting desperate now. Yeah, I know, it's long. So for two months, the killing went quiet. 
And then he murders Vera Millward, age 40, as she was killed in the Manchester Royal Infirmary car park. And then he stops for a year. And during this time, his mother dies. So I think that's probably why. So the police... I mean, a lot of people have been I mean, I'm sure cont- she was okay, but I'm finding it hard to give a shit about his mum dying. I'm yeah, sorry. no, I get it. The police, police heavily criticise. I mean, what are they doing all this time? I guess they've got no leads, but... Oh, there must have been some evidence anywhere. I mean, they have questioned him as well. I mean, I don't know. But... But there's no DNA. He yeah. had an alibi. I mean, they know blood type. It's, they might not even be connecting all of them for a really long time. Yeah. So le- then the assistant chief constable received letters um, from someone who signs off Jack the Ripper. Oh, here we go. With details of the murders. Which at first they're like, no, no, no. But then there's information in these letters that they feel like no one else could have known. Shortly after that, Josephine Whittaker, a 19-year-old bank clerk, is assaulted walking home. And again, media storm, another innocent victim. Please follow a lead of a tape recording of a man with a Sunderland accent. So they start looking for someone, Sunderland accent, um, which had had this guy talking on it saying i am the murder i'm the yorkshire ripper i did it but this turns out to be some alcoholic guy from sunderland who wanted a bit of publicity and he gets charged That's with so weird that an innocent person would be like yeah i'll just tell them i'm the one like <laughs> i guess like it's such a sensation that people who are a little bit in need of some attention might come forward we've had to, yeah, yeah i guess but like he's not like going to the police he's just like mouthing off being like yeah it's me i kill women yeah well he sent it to the police though oh yeah like oh, a tape okay, recording fine. so sutcliffe murdered another non-sex worker who's 20 year old student barbara leach he's re-interviewed by the police regarding the five pound note like asking for alibis but they're not really gaining any insight. He's not. He's nowhere near top of the list. He's just another guy. Um, and his wife, I guess, I wonder is what his job for performance is like. I wondered that because, like, surely all these murders take a toll on a person. Well, like, I wonder, how can you yeah. have a normal conversation anymore? Yeah. Like, what do you chat about when mm. you're out hammering people every night? Well, I guess he's a lorry driver, so he's not chatting to anyone about uh, anything. Yeah, that's really. true. So Sutcliffe is then arrested for driving while drunk. Um. And then, so they let him go, awaiting trial for that. He continues to murder. He killed Marguerite Wells, aged 47, in August 1908. Jacqueline Hall, in November the same year. He also attacks um, Upadja Bandara in Leeds. She survives. And Teresa Sykes in Huddersfield, and she survives. So widespread, these assaults, murders are happening. Um, And at this time, one of Suckler's friends actually goes to the police and says... I think Peter Sutcliffe is a good option for you to investigate. So he must have been creepy in his day-to-day life then. If your friends can get to the point where they're like, I think he's probably a murderer. Like, what would you have to start doing for me to be like, oh, I think Lucy is killing people. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to be fucking weird. He must be dropping bombs. Yeah, like like maybe saying something weird about how he doesn't like sex workers and then... Yeah. yeah. But then the information's just lost. They didn't follow it up. I know. Ridiculous. So, 1981, this is how they get him. Okay, we're there. We're there. No more murders from this point on. <laughs> Everyone just <laughs> switches up. He 
picks up 24-year-old sex worker Olivia Reavers. And the police at this point think, look, the best option we've got for finding someone who's murdering sex workers is finding people who've got a sex worker in their car and then, I guess, asking them if they're going to murder them. (laughs) So they stop him. They then run his number plates of the car and they are false. And they obviously think, white car, relevant. And then they look at him and they think, looks a bit similar to the drawings that we've had from mm-hmm. other victims. So they take him in for questioning. Before that, he goes for a wee while the police are sort of running the light, running the place. And Chucks stuff. his hammer out the window. Exactly. Oh my God, did he literally? Yeah. And then he's arrested. So please go back to the spot where they arrested him the next day. I guess they're like, oh yeah, we probably should check that. They find a hammer, a rope and a knife that he's just cast to the side, which... I don't know how he hid those so well. It's like that scene on the American office where Dwight's getting pulled over by the police so he's just like quickly throwing all these weapons out of the window before they come. Yeah. And he also hid a second life in the cistern of the toilet at the police station before he was searched as well. Now the weirdest thing is that when they ask him to take off his clothes in the station you cannot force me to do a strip search i learned this in year seven english or whatever not in public but you can in the station but he's got a jumper under his clothes but not he's not wearing a jumper like i'm wearing a jumper right now he's put his legs through the armholes and his little gonads are dangling through the neck hole of this jumper i think it's like he just needed a pair of long johns and it's like this will have to do what with his knob out i don't know air it out can get quite sweaty i don't know but i mean if you're strip searching someone i think that's number one alarm officer finding that my first question would be why yeah that needs to have been written down exactly so he's questioned right with underwear on no balls actually like they were hanging out so that was his underwear yeah was a jumper so they're like this guy is a murderer i mean (laughs) i mean you would wouldn't you so He's questioned intensely for two days and eventually he admits that he is the Ripper and he says that God had told him to murder the women. And I guess he's got this sort of like idea of like I'm ridding the world. Of... Mm. But then he's he's murdered loads of women who like desperate situations or they're doing it for their family. And I guess he didn't think of that at the time, but it's so obvious. And then also he's murdered women that aren't sex workers as well. And I just, it's, it's just so deluded. But he says that he is not guilty to the 13 counts of murder that he's being charged with because he says it's diminished responsibility because he has paranoid schizophrenia. And four psychiatrists agree that he has got paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, fuck. So the prosecution say, right, we're going to accept his plea on manslaughter. But the judge says, fuck, no, this guy is going to trial, basically. I mean, he was keeping a job. He's, it's not like he's mindlessly going around. He held that woman down and put horse hair in her mouth so she couldn't scream for an hour. I mean, this is planned out. It's not like it's not like he didn't understand that he couldn't do it. So they he goes to trial, he's found guilty, he gets minimum 30 years for 13 murders. I think that's pretty light. So he'd be about 65 when he gets out. So, Sutcliffe was initially kept at Pankhurst Prison, but despite him not being able to stand trial, he is 
categorized as I guess insane and he's sent to Broadmoor now at the prison he's attacked by prisoner James Costello then at Broadmoor he's attacked by Kenneth Erskine oh you did him Stockwell Strangler <laughs> I sounded a bit too happy to recognize like, yay oh, Kenneth, Kenneth how have you been yeah. how's Broadmoor treating you Great. and then he's also attacked by a Jamie Devitt and then like a load of other criminals attacked him as well which is really weird because they're all horrible but it especially like I Kenneth Erskine like, like, yeah but they're all like oh this guy's worse let's he must get have been him. irritating yeah he kept stealing their jumpers and <laughs> yeah. wearing them as underwear yeah <laughs> Um, so he was attacked again in 1997 by Ian Key and he loses vision in one eye at this point so quite lasting effects and a bunch more times he did apply for parole when he was old enough but they said no and that he'd never be released from prison so he, I think he's back in normal prison now but you know, by that point I was so tired of researching I just gave up so your homework is find out where he is um okay so thank you for listening thanks very much hope you enjoyed it yep um and if you didn't shove it up your book (laughs) and uh we'd love for you to tweet us and tell us what you thought of it as long as it's good (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's true though yeah it's true um get on facebook join in the conversations on there you can follow us on instagram we'd i like just google it like slaughter it yeah. comes up slaughter podcast um and uh you can email us at slaughter the podcast at gmail.com and remember listening to slaughter doesn't make you a psycho wearing a jumper as your underwear does. i mean that's just like the itchiness against your very private regions that alone is a worry yeah have a good week guys bye bye planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.